everyone. Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. I'm your host, James Huang, and we are here with a deep dive episode talking about, well, fixing stuff. Regular listeners of Nerd Alert are probably well aware that we're all pretty big fans of being able to fix stuff when it's broken. And we've talked a lot in previous episodes about the whole right to repair movement and everything that goes with it, like part availability, readily available service manuals, and design for serviceability. But these conversations almost always revolve around hard goods. What about soft goods like clothing and bags? Shouldn't we also consider repairing that stuff when it's damaged instead of just tossing it away once it's got some holes or tears in it? In today's episode, I talked to a couple of people and companies that are doing just that. Suzanne Carlson, the co-owner slash designer slash operations manager slash question answerer of Velo Color in Toronto, Canada, and Ian Strakel, product manager at Ortlieb USA just outside Seattle, Washington, the American subsidiary of well-known German bag brand Ortlieb. When it comes to apparel and bags, exactly how repairable is that stuff? What does that process look like? How economically viable is it for both consumers and brands? What are the limits of repairability? What are some best practices that we should all consider when looking into having some of our soft goods repaired? And how big an impact would any of this have anyway? Let's find out the answers to all of that and more in this week's episode of Nerd Alert. Suzanne and Ian, thanks for being on the show today. I really appreciate you guys making the time. Happy to be here, James. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Um, I want to start with a just a little bit of an overview of what the repair business looks like for each of your companies, so we can kind of get an idea of what we're talking about here. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to start with Ian. Um, Ian, I know Ortlieb was founded, I think it was actually like 40 years ago now in Germany, um, and the, the company's got quite the reputation for durability for its waterproof bags. Um, and I know that repairability is pretty core to the Ortlieb brand. How long has repair been a part of the business and what does that actually look like for Ortlieb? Yeah, good questions. I would say longer than I know. I would say basically at the beginning of Ortlieb's founding back in 82, uh, repair was part of the ethos. Um, Hartmut Ortlieb, the founder, uh, was an outdoorsman, still is. At that time, he was 18 and looking towards the future and wanted to make sure there was a world for his potential children to explore. And um, so it's been there since day one. We've been using durable goods, building uh, kind of modular, repairable construction, and uh, all the fabrics that we're using are patchable. Hmm. Cool. Um, yeah, because if I, I, mean, I just peeked around at the website a little bit before we started recording, um, and it looks like Ortlieb actually designs its products specifically for repairability. Is that correct? Yeah, that's definitely an element of uh, the, the design and construction process. Um, you know, sustainability can look like a lot of different things, but uh, buying things once and tuning it up over time is probably the best example of minimizing waste. Okay. Um, and to be clear, Orlieb only repairs its own products. Is that correct? That is true. Okay. Um, what do things look like as far as like cost and turnaround, that sort of thing? Say like someone crashes on their bike and they, they have like an abrasion tear on their pannier. Uh, what, what are they looking at in terms of turnaround time, cost, that sort of thing? Yeah, I can speak specifically to the U.S. market because we do have uh, distribution around the globe and not all of our distributors offer repair services. It looks a little bit different from market to market. Um, in the U.S., say you had a, a crash, Murphy followed you along on your bike ride. Um, 
and you want to get the bags fixed up, it basically it would start with a conversation with our product service team. Uh, they would assess the damages, see what it looks like. You know, if you have just a simple tear because you got some road rash, then they can talk about patching the bags. If your pannier was attacked by a gang of hungry raccoons and it's ripped to shreds, then there might be another conversation about crash replacement. Um, generally speaking, uh, we work on a, a per hour basis rather than on a per problem basis. Um, and typically it's $25 an hour. Um, that covers the patching materials. If there's any hard components that are broken, like load rails, top hooks, buckles, any of that type of stuff, then that would be uh, an additional material cost to that labor rate. Um, the end user is responsible for the freight shipping to our office and return shipping. And um, if you do happen to have that uh, gang of raccoons attack your pannier and rip it to shreds, it's beyond repair. Uh, we do have a crash replacement program that would be opened up. And essentially your damaged product that's beyond repair would be um, absorbed as a partial credit towards a new replacement item. Okay. Do you have any sense as to what what repair costs are on average for, for certain jobs? Usually it's $25. Oh, wow. I mean, okay. yeah, I mean, typically if a bag needs more than an hour's worth of patching, um, it's it's ripped up like a sieve. You know, <laughs> the way we find holes uh, in the bags is we kind of hold them up and I call it a reverse planetarium. So you hold it up to the sun <laughs> or a very bright light and you look for little pinholes of light ingress. And, you know, um, if there's five or ten pinholes that can be achieved in an hour, um, if there's. If it looks like a sieve, you know, a colander, it's it's probably going to be more patches than the body of the bag and probably not going to be an endurable, you know, guaranteeable repair. Got it. Okay. Well, um, Su well Suzanne, I'm actually just going to go ahead and move to you now. Um, can, can I ask absolutely. a question about Ian and patches in there? Um, are all like with your bags because they're... They're hundred percent waterproof. I'm assuming. Yeah. Um, is it? It's all like an adhesive repair you're doing on the like it's all patch patch repairs or no or is that or is that top secret? <laughs> it's very public info. <laughs> um, and we don't use solvents or adhesives for any of the repairs that we do at the factory. We can definitely recommend um, options for field repairs or for home repairs that would use either solvents or adhesives and pressure sensitive adhesives to patch things. And I think when you're on the road, those are great options. Um, I have an old PVC kayak that it seems like every time we take it out, we need to patch it. So I know that those solvent based patches work. It's uh, if I could, could stop poking holes in that thing, I wouldn't need to patch it. Right. Um, we use a process um, at the at the warehouse that's heat and pressure. So imagine sort of a, a heat wand. It's like a hairdryer on steroids and a roller. And so that's the heat and the pressure. And then the important part or the secret sauce is you need to use like fabric. So if you're working on a... Um, you know, PU coated Cordura nylon, you cannot use a PVC or a TPU to patch that. So you need like fabric to repair the item that you're working on. Um, there's actually a really cool video that they just put up on our um, Instagram channel. And it shows this process where there's a damaged pannier. They show the, the heat welding, the, the sewing, and then the final outcome. Um, so that's a pretty public way to, to visualize it. Hmm. Cool. Sounds like something that you can use on, on your end of things, Suzanne. Um, actually, this is a perfect <laughs> little segue to, to move into your side of the business. So um, 
Suzanne, I know mm-hmm. you've got quite a different setup over there at VeloColor. Um, you're a much newer company, I think dating back to like 2008, I think. Um, 2008, yeah. I guess the way that I know, uh, or I guess first found out about VeloColor um, was from you know, various handmade shows because I, I mainly knew about VeloColor as a paint shop, which is how it started. Um, and you've only really expanded into soft goods, uh, what, like seven, eight years ago, something like that? So when did you start offering repair for customer-owned stuff, and what does that look like on your end? Yeah, so we about, when was it? So we've always made our bag, like our soft goods in-house with a lifetime warranty. So we, we if we do ever get those back, although in the eight years we've been doing it, we've only had a couple of them back in for repair, which is good. Um, so like Ortlieb, yeah, we set out to make stuff that, is going to last. That's sort of the intent. And then a few years ago, we, in the space we work out of, it's a pretty industrial space where we have full paint booth for our paint restorations and paint work with the sewing studio and a mezzanine, but we have a, a very small kind of retail space in the front of our workspace. And in, I would say, but probably about three years ago, we, we wanted to sort of build out that retail stuff to be beyond Velo color products. And we started to look at kit and, you know, other sort of cycling accessories, not necessarily a full bike shop, but we wanted to offer a bit more. Um, and so in doing that, because we, ha- we're pretty, we have pretty strong feelings about the companies we carry and supply and, you know, kit at the time was just starting to talk about sustainability and recycled fabrics we, um, at that point we brought in Velocio and one of the reasons, the main reasons we brought them in, I think we were the first retailer in Canada to carry them, but we also, we also started working with them under the intent of being their repair center. Cause, cause at that point they were only offering repair kit repair for their American customers and no one else. And so the idea was we would also be repairing all of the kit with Oh, interesting. Canada. So that was so because we have well so that, sorry, so, so that was part of the deal right from the get go for you then huh Yeah yeah pretty much and we we had been thinking about it prior to that because we have the full sewing studio where we manufacture our bags so we pretty much have all the machines in place to do that sort of thing um and it was just a matter of of yeah figuring out the techniques and and like the different threads and that sort of thing cuz most of the bags were using like fairly heavy duty like waterproof x-pack and cordura whereas kit is obviously made from very different materials so um but the one great thing about starting it with Felucio is they right from the get-go they sent us um a box of materials that they're using in their kit so so with the repairs that we do for them it's really great in that all of the patching and stuff we're doing we have the matching material it's a bit trickier now that we're moving into other um other brands, it, the material is sort of all over the place, and there's obviously a bit of kind of uh, growing pains. I guess I would say that maybe that's not quite quite the right word, but you know we have to be realistic with customers. Like, yes, your your kit is a crazy pattern. We can't match that. So, is it a black patch, or what goes with the rest of the kit, or sort of seamless ways of preparing that? Well, that yeah. aspect of things is actually kind of what fascinates me the most about your specific. Uh, style of repair business because um, yes, I know you are. I know you are an official Canadian repair spot for uh, Velocio, uh, and I know you're also. Uh, I, I believe you're also an official repair point for Apidura bags too, right? 
We are. Um, we are. Yeah. I mean, so that yeah. certainly makes sense considering that you make your own bag so that, that those skills obviously transfer over. Um, but when you were talking with Velocio about, uh, about becoming the Canadian repair center, I mean, at that point you weren't making any clothes and you still don't make any clothes. So like, how does that work? <laughs> Yeah, once once you kind of have the skills, but both actually myself and uh, our main uh, Perseus, our main textile sewer, um, I ha- I have a pretty like pretty vast like textile sewing background, um, and Perseus actually used to work uh, for a tailor in England, so. So we, so we went into it, you know, we all repair our own clothes and we went into it like with the confidence of knowing we would be able to do it. Um, it I, one thing with Velocio is they sent us, they put us in touch with who, the person that does their repairs and sent us a lot of visuals and, and, you know, sample stitching and that sort of thing. So, and, you know, with like myself and Noah, my co-owner partner, like we have pretty high standards and if, and a lot of people who know us for the paint work we do, um, they just sort of, because we have so high standards in that they know they, they trust that it just carries over into everything we do. So that sort of reputation has been really kind of helpful in getting this off the ground. Uh, sure. So what do things look like for, for Velocolor if someone sends something in for repair, whether it be, uh, in an official capacity with Apidura or Velocio or, whatever else, because it seems like you've actually kind of opened things up to taking just about anything that you think you can handle. <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty much. Um, so with, with Epidura and Velocio, um, it's kind of great in that they do all of the customer service conversations. So essentially um, um, something shows up. We, we know through various uh, sort of organizational platforms, um, what's coming in and who the customer is. Um, and it's a lot of times it's fairly obvious. There's a giant hole in your, in your bibs and you need it patched. Um, and then, and it's, it, with that, it's, it's quite straightforward because we don't actually have that customer communication or that back and forth. Um, the, when we're dealing with other, any other kit companies, it's a matter, yeah, you send us an email with pictures, we can give you sort of a ballpark estimate of what we think the job is going to be. We're similar to Ortlieb in that we kind of charge per hour. Um, but it, it's really tricky to sort of, we will give an estimate for something, you know, repairs can be anywhere from $15 to you know, $80, depending on what you're getting done. Um, and then, yeah, the, so the customer will send us the repair and then we go over what we're going to do and, um, yeah, essentially get it done. We do have, um, I, I, there's always like a million different ways of going about a repair, you know, so whether someone wants, um, you know, just sort of the cheap and easy, they want it closed up, they don't care what it looks like, you know, that is a very different cost than if they want it to look somewhat seamless. So that's always the question we ask right off the bat, like, what is your expectations with this repair? And this is what it could cost within that. And, and uh, yeah, then it's pretty easy to kind of determine from there as to what their expectations are. So like if you're repairing, if you're repairing, say a hole in a pair of bibs, but the bibs you only paid $80 for, you just don't want your skin showing. Whereas if you're getting, you know, your chamois detached from a bib that was $400, like you want it, you want it back in that state to a certain extent. 
So, and we have, for people who are dropping off, like people who are local and dropping off, I've sewn up a bunch of different samples. So when they come in, we can show them what they're going to, what it's going to look like and how they want. So that's good. It's a little bit more complicated for people who are shipping to us, obviously, but we have, we have a spot on our website that's like has frequently asked questions and like to think that maybe covers a lot of it. But So overall though, like it seems like it's still fairly economical most of the time, at least for the, I, I, it seems safe to say that just based on the sort of clientele that Bello Color has cultivated over the years, it seems probably more likely that you more often have the sort of customer that has a pretty decently expensive set of bibs that they, or jersey or whatever, that, they would, that they'd like repair it, right? Yeah, yeah, 100%, 100% for sure. Okay. So, yeah, and even if those, even if, I don't know, I, I do feel like though we do get uh, like other kit that, yeah, you know, it's a set of arm warmers and, you know, we, we got some bibs in a few weeks ago that the only, a lot of the elastic was gone, but there was like sentimental value in it. And yeah, the, you know, sentimental value goes a long way for some things to get it repaired. So well, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up. Cause that's one of the questions that I have. Um, yeah, Ian, you had mentioned that, um, oftentimes if a repair looks like it's going to, if it's going to run, you know, more than an hour or something like that, that, um, you know, oftentimes you kind of have to probably have that tough conversation with the customer that like, you know, Hey, this thing that you sent in is probably not really worth repairing. Um, I mean, how often do either of you have to have that conversation and kind of as a follow-up question to that, how often do you run into a situation where the thing that you're repairing just does have that sort of sentimental, uh, sentimental value that someone just wants to have it back the way it was kind of no matter what it costs? Yeah. Um, in terms of, Frequency of bags that are beyond repair, um, it's not too often. I would say that's uh, more the exception than the rule. Um, you know, there's sometimes where <clears throat> there's damage that's a longer laceration and a load bearing portion. That would probably be the most common example of when a, a, a product is damaged beyond repair and we would like to crash replace it um, more so than the, than the raccoons just chewing a bag to bits. But I have seen both. Um, <laughs> a real common one would be if a pannier is ill-fitted to a rack and it gets sucked into a rear wheel. There can be quite a bit of damage. It basically peels the whole backside of the pannier off the front of the bag and about a one foot L-shaped tear and it's dramatic. And I would say that happens maybe one in every 20 repairs we do, just shooting from the hip. Um, in terms of the sentimental value, I, I would say about once a year, we get somebody who has so many memories with their touring panniers and just you know, doesn't really care what the cost is or if it comes out with more patches than primary material, they just want them back. Um, I remember a pair of panniers that were from like around 90 or 91 that came in. And I remember that because they were an asymmetric design, which we phased out quite a long time ago and a really pretty purple colorway as well. And they, uh, they sent them in to have the system updated. So it was a really antiquated, maybe four, four versions ago system on there. And they wanted it to, to fit and run like a new pannier. So we did some pretty extensive work on those old bags, drilling out rivets and replacing it with hardware, different stiffener plates, that kind of thing. Um, but that's definitely the exception over the rule. It, it almost seems like from an internal standpoint that while that's definitely the, the exception, as you were saying, it almost seems like that would be almost kind of fun for the people who are doing the repair though, right? Because like, that's when you kind of need to get creative, right? Yeah, yeah, it definitely opens up that creativity. Um, you know, finding 
challenging spots to patch bags is also another place where you can get creative and you feel really, you know, gratified, like you've accomplished something when it's done good. <laughs> yeah. uh, Suzanne, what about for you? Because again, like, like we were just saying, the, the, the scope of things that you take in for repair is so much broader than what Ian will see at Ortlieb. Um, where do you where do you draw the line? Like, because because at some point it seems like you know you're taking stuff in, and maybe my guess is that you're probably having a pretty upfront conversation with people, just saying like, you know, we don't know if we can repair this, but go ahead and send it in. So, like, how often do you have something where it's just not going to happen? Um, well, I would say we haven't actually had that yet. We've been able to figure most things out, and and actually in the grand scheme of things, um, it really we have most customers say like, okay, if this repair is going to be, you know, 60 to $80 in the end, it's still cheaper than whatever we're repairing. So whether it's replacing a zipper in a Jersey, um, repairing, we repaired like a Velcro tongue on a pair of shoes a few weeks ago. Um, you know, whether it's the shoes or the kit or the jerseys, like most people who are getting those things repaired, it's still, um, it's still costing them less than it is to replace replace it, and and more and more, I find most people are just like, I don't I don't want to send this to the landfill. Like I might as well fix it and just keep using it until um, until it's really not usable anymore. So I find that's and and that's a, a big thing for people these days is wanting to fix stuff to just be able to keep using them because they don't want to put it in the trash. It's every other part of that product is still good is still working right? I, mean, I have to say that really warms my heart to hear hear you say that you're getting more and more people who are primarily just interested in keeping something going instead of just throwing it away i really love that more people are are doing that um and i suppose part of that also is the fact that cycling stuff in general does seem to be getting more and more expensive um and so are you I mean, it does seem like there's more of an economic motivator too for people to have stuff repaired as opposed to having to buy stuff new just because like it, even for a pretty comprehensive repair, if it's still cheaper than buying something new, that's still the way to go, right? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I, I have these, these dreams of like being able to change chamois in bibs because like so many times, like the bib is still good, but the reason why you're not wearing it anymore is because the chamois has gone soft. That's like, you know whether that's going to be realistic and possible with all the different brands and different chamois out there. But anyways, <laughs> sidebar. <laughs> I mean, so, the, the thing is look, yeah. looking at how you operate at Velocolor, it really wouldn't surprise me if I saw that pop up on your webpage at some point. <laughs> wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah. yeah um, well that, <laughs> yeah. uh, it kind of leads me to the next section that I wanted to talk about here was because I, I mean, yeah, I mean, both of you have uh, what seems to be a pretty pretty robust repair operation to your businesses. Um, and while logistically there are obviously some you know some hurdles to overcome with that, and you know, just some you know, just some like practicalities that that need to be overcome. Um, there's also the motivation question because there are an awful lot of companies out there. I mean, certainly the the vast majority of them they just don't offer repair at all. Um, so I'm curious to hear why offering this sort of thing is important to your respective brands because, um, you know, like in the outdoor world, I think obviously a lot of people listening to the show are, are probably quite quite aware that Patagonia has offered this sort of thing forever. Um, but it's definitely a rarity as far as the bike world goes. So why 
I guess, what brought you to this stage anyway, to be able to just to, to want to fix stuff? So I, 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 don't, I think a big motivation for us at Velocolor, and it definitely started with the bikes. Um, Noah was originally known for sort of more restoration paint than, say, paint on a brand new carbon bike. Um, for us, it's, it's, the motivation is definitely in um, keeping good quality made stuff, you know, working and out of the landfill and 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 we I don't know we have a strong belief or we have a strong hunch that you know we're gonna or we'd like to think maybe the cycling industry is going to come back around to be more of a service-based industry than a consumer-based industry yeah we'd like to hope that that is the case right like when you think back to to bike shops working uh, well I don't know how I would date this so much but you know it was really about the bike shops offering services, you know, we're, we're offering a service to, to repaint your bike or the service to fix your kit. You know, you're the, the cost of doing business is going into the labor of paying people more so than it is to just selling more goods. Um, uh, I, maybe it's a crazy bold statement and we might not see that transition in our lifetime, but I don't know. With where sort of things are going with the environment, we actually might be forced into that, right? So I guess that's, yeah, I, for us, that is a, a big motivation for sure. Um, on, on the simple basis of keeping stuff out of the landfill, that's a really big motivation. And then we're sort of, we also think like with our bags, for example, is thinking about end of life. Um, you know, we can't repair everything. There's going to be stuff coming through the door that, um, can't be repaired or is is old and they're upgrading. So we also have a program like a recycling box that you can put your old saddlebags in. Um, and if you come in and you don't say can't afford our saddlebags, you know you're more than welcome to go through that bin and 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 take one from there. So yeah, so I think that's for us sort of the way we're headed as opposed to selling new goods. Obviously, there's a lot of scenarios where you do have to replace stuff, but um, making things more repairable in the cycling industry is a must. And I'd like to see a lot of the companies really get on board with right. that. And, and I guess so. for, for you, um, I mean, certainly I've seen people raise the criticism that like, Oh, I'd love to buy a Vela color bag, but it's way too expensive when I can get this other thing for like a third of the cost, mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Um, I mean, that is something yeah. that is, it's hard to overcome for some people, I think, but um, I am certainly sure. seeing more often that uh, just this this idea that, yes, yeah, something might be a little bit more expensive up front, but uh, kind of pushing the notion that you should, you know, kind of maybe be more uh, kind of more thoughtful in terms of what you are what you're spending your money on and what you're buying. Yeah, I really think we we can probably you know, consume less as a society. It's again, a, a very grand statement, but um, yeah, things are just made way too cheap and we just consume too much that I think thoughtful consumption is a sort of somewhere we need to be heading. So, but obviously that, you know, I know Patagonia, like you mentioned, yeah, they're great in repairing, but you know, not everyone can spend $150 on a sweatshirt and, so how do how do you also make that aspect of it equitable and approachable? Right, right. right. So, um, Ian, from Ortlieb's perspective, 
I mean, you said that the the repair aspect of the business has been there for as long as you can remember. Um, and again, the, the company's been around yeah. for four decades now. Exactly. Um, so the uh, obviously this whole the whole notion of uh, you know kind of climate stewardship or environmental stewardship and climate change and um, sustainability. I mean, those are all obviously big buzzwords right now. But for a lot of people, it's really only been something at the front of their mind for the last you know pretty recently, like just only in the last few years. Um, and this is seemingly something that Ortlieb has had in mind for a really long time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, Suzanne touched on something that that really was interesting to me when I was first starting with Ortlieb about uh, just shy of 20 years ago. And you were saying that we're kind of coming around and using bikes, not so much like toys, to paraphrase, but more like a utilitarian item. And one of the things that blew my mind my first trip over to Germany was that they never really were relegated to toys. You know, the Deutsche Post has been using bike delivery forever. And um, it's it's just part of life and it is a tool. And I think that that was really kind of baked into Hartmut's experience when he founded the company so long ago. Um, you know, we have a, a statement, we call it our, our three core values, you know, the, the three legs of the stool, so to speak. And so one is waterproof. So every Ortley product's gonna be waterproof. The other one is made in Germany. And that's really important for us. Um, about 70% of all the materials we source to put everything together is, comes from Germany. And about 90% of our production happens right on our campus in Heilsbronn, just outside of Nuremberg. But the third leg of the stool is specifically speaking to this topic, which is authentic sustainability. And that word authentic is really important because there's a lot of companies that are just greenwashing everything right now. And, um, you know, to go back to Patagonia, they've done a lot of really good things and for the environment and send uh, education that way. Um, you know, demonizing PVC in the marketplace and, and choosing more responsible plastic materials is a good example. Um, some parody there. Back in 1996, we developed our first PVC-free fabric, and that was long before Patagonia was championing that cause. Um, you know, some other really... Um, Great examples of that are, it was back in um, 99, we, um, no, pardon me, in uh, about 10, 2017, uh, we launched a PVC recycling project or uh, reclaiming project, let me rephrase that. Um, so in Germany, you cannot throw PVC away because it off gases. And so it needs to be handled in a very specific way. And it's not really approachable for an end user to do that. So we started a program where anyone can send their bags when they've reached the end of the cycle into our headquarters, and we'll dispose of that for them in a responsible, eco-friendly way. Um, yeah, another great example is like in... Last year, we, we uh, sorry, take a step back. Ortlieb doesn't just make bags. We've got a company that makes waterproof zippers also. It was also founded by Hartmut Ortlieb, and it's on our campus in Heilsbronn. The brand is called Tizip, and you might recognize them from like hip waders or um, some of those Yeti bags. Yeti was dual sourcing for a while. Um, the Tizip zippers, once they were welded into the body of the bag for the longest time, were not repairable. And so that really was a thorn in Hartmut's side. And uh, so last year he developed a way to 
sort of splice out the old slider if it was damaged or deformed and then insert a new slider and then repair it in a way that's still waterproof and maintains its IP67 rating. Um, so we're always looking for ways to tune and enhance our process. Um, we needed to build out a new warehouse in 2012, I think it was. Don't quote me on that, but somewhere in that time frame, we just hit our warehouse capacity. So they're building a building. So Hartmut decided to put a small solar farm on top of the building. And currently, um, 100% of our electricity needs are carbon neutral, but we're offsetting that by buying some carbon neutral electricity. One third of our overall electricity comes from our own solar farm. And we're making strides right now. So the goal is 2025 that not only will 100% of our electric needs be met with our own solar, but we'll be producing enough solar that will feed back into the German grid. Cool. And I'd imagine that your energy needs are pretty high for just what you do there. Yeah, it's... uh yeah, we definitely higher electricity needs than water needs. We basically need almost no water for production. The welding machines that put our bags together use quite a bit of juice, but only for a very short amount of time. And then when they're in that idle mode, they sit for a long time. Um, the machines that make the zippers, so our, our sister company or daughter company, however you look at it, uh, TIEZIP, they're more of an extrusion machine. So think about like a Play-Doh Fun Factory, and those comparatively are power hogs because they need to heat up, then they extrude, and then they need to cool down as well. And the whole time they're just pegged at the you know current drop. So um yeah, it's a it's a really fascinating process. I'm I totally geek out on that how stuff's made show. So every time I go to the factory, I'm always nerding out about this little detail or that little detail. I'm I'm curious. You know, you were saying that um for sure there's an awful lot of greenwashing going on. Um, but it also seems that, um, again, not to continue to come back to the whole Patagonia thing, but it, it does seem like in the long term, having that sort of attitude and being that sort of open about what your greater goals are can be very beneficial business-wise, economically-wise. Um, you know, maybe not in the very short term, but long term and toward developing that sort of brand identity and that sort of reputation. Um, do you it, it, does does that play into Ortley even does that play into Velocolor as far as you know how people perceive the brands and what they see the value in? Yeah, I think that um, it definitely it definitely falls into um, not universally, especially here in the United States. Um, a great example of that is we launched a line called the Free Line, and what that means is the fabric is made of TPU as opposed to PVC. So it looks and feels just like a PVC tarp. Um, it's almost indistinguishable, but it has much better environmental properties. The plasticizers are, are not the same and they don't off gas in the same way. So we have a product specifically built for people that still wanted to buy our very first material, the, the classic panniers, because it looks like a life raft, but it has a more eco-friendly, um, more responsible sourcing and imprint on the planet. In the US, some markets buy that specifically and and reach out for that in europe we see it quite a bit but there are quite a few markets in the u.s where frankly people just don't care and it's more price driven um and so i think as a nation we've got a ways to come but i'm really excited every time i hear my 
you know, younger nieces and nephews and cousins speak about, you know, their, their buying habits and, um, you know, about their trends and seeing fewer giant diesel trucks and more, you know, small economy cars or bicycles on the streets, you know? And so I, I think that, you know, well, <laughs> giant superstorms might help, but, uh, we're, we're, we're turning the curve. <laughs> Suzanne, what about for you? Because uh, again, Velocolor started out as a paint shop, and it's basically right in the name of the company, Velocolor. Um, and the re- the repair aspect, I mean, it does seem like it could be just sort of like a growing portion of your business in general. Um, and but if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, like looking at your website and that sort of thing, it doesn't seem like as of right now the repair is something that you're pushing super hard. Like, is it still something that you're kind of like sort of like more building in the background and like trying to figure out how to put it out there? Um, yeah, to a certain extent, I think that's actually maybe more just a matter of time, like or the amount of time we've had to to invest into it. Um, I think more people are seeing or finding out of, out about us say via Instagram. So the updating of our website comes after things that are put out, say via social media. Um, so, but yeah, we're a hundred percent. That is where we are heading as a business. Um, and, and I'd like to think that, you know, there's more of a desire for that. Um, less for, for us, you know, less of a focus on sort of the luxury, luxury goods that, you know, come with hand-built bikes and custom-painted bikes and more um, more about repairability and accessibility and, and that sort of thing as a, as a company. Um, and, you know, we, we're constantly thinking, like, we want to have that plan and these, these actions in place before we're actually forced into them because of, you know, what is happening environmentally around us. So um, I've not sure, you know, we ship a lot of, you know, for our paint and for our bags, we ship, a, we ship a ton all over the world. Um, and whether that's something, you know, is, is that in our five or 10 year business plan, we're constantly questioning whether that's going to be necessary and whether there's going to be a demand for that. So the idea is to focus more locally on, on repairability and, um, yeah, you know, making products that last for sure. Um, And I think actually just, I was just going to add to that. Like I heard, um, yeah, I think repairability is, is so important. And there's like two things I'm surprised, you know, what Ian talked about, like greenwashing of sustainability. I've reached out to a couple of kit companies, you know, saying like, we're doing this similar thing with Velocio, you know, obviously, you know, you're investing in recycled materials. Would you be interested in discussing more? And they're like, no, our crash replacement is fine. And it's like, it, it, it blows my mind, the, the couple companies that did it, because I or that sort of responded like that, because I was like, but, you know, everything you're putting out there right now is talking about sustainability, but you don't want to discuss like repairability. So, you know, which is interesting. And then and then I was listening to I think it was a marketing podcast and they talked about um, consumers in France were recently surveyed. It was about repairability around electronics. But in the coming years, electronics in France uh, on all, um, on all like marketing display in store, you're going to be able to go in and the electronic that is there will be, I think labeled like a through D. So a is it's like a hundred percent repairable and D is like, once this breaks, you have to throw it out. And so consumers are going to be able to go into a store and purchase their electronics according to this scale. And like, 
I 100% think most people are going to select the A or B that is going to be able to be fixed as opposed to the D that like once it breaks, you have to throw out. Interesting. I don't know. Should be interesting. Uh, I don't know. I mean, both of you have probably heard of this website, iFixit. Um, And I I, I love it. It's I've definitely used it multiple times for various phone components and instructions, tutorials, that sort of thing. Um, I I think it's pretty clear that, um, I mean, obviously you wouldn't be doing this if it didn't make sense for your company. I think, I mean, sure, there's a, there's a long-term kind of like brand identity and recognition aspect to it. Um, and maybe a company the size of Ortlieb, you know, let's just say it was part of like more like a brand identity thing, like a, a company the size of Ortlieb can probably get away with doing something like that. Um, but you know, Velocolor, you guys are, you guys are tiny. You guys are really small. Um, so I would, I would imagine <laughs> yeah. that you wouldn't be repairing stuff if it wasn't actually economically feasible. Um, and certainly, or, and, and Ian, I'm not suggesting that Ortlieb is doing this just for, just for show. I mean, it's clearly a part of the company DNA, but, um, I, I think it's pretty clear at this point that even for, for both of your companies, one pretty big and one quite small, that it is very possible for a brand to offer repair services. Now, at least kind of depending on the nature of the product for sure, but, um, but I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on why this sort of thing is the exception rather than the norm for cycling companies to offer that sort of thing. Um, well, I, I would say because the cost of producing goods is so cheap, right? So why would they, why would they put effort into fixing something wherein you can just, you can just make another one? Like I'd be curious is Ortlieb's, uh, repair budgets, money making, or is it part of the marketing department? <laughs> I don't, I don't want to like, like be cheeky about that, yeah. but like, yeah. And, and like the cost, the cost of repairing for us, yeah, we're still trying to figure it out. It's all based on labor and labor is like the most expensive thing. Right. And we, we pay all of our employees very well. So, um, yeah, so it's it's a bit tricky um, from like a cycling point of view. Like all of our bikes are Campagnolo because you can fully disassemble them; they can be rebuilt, and then it's like you have a brand new group set. Granted, like we're still maybe old fashioned in that we're running cables and wire, not wires <laughs> or wireless. But um, but for us, that's always kind of been a priority. Um, but I think it. I, I I would argue that it, it just comes down to that it's it's still really cheap to make stuff, and you're going to make stuff cheaper than you are going to fix it. Um, I'd like to think that there's going to be a shift in mindset. I'd love to see like the bigger companies get on board with that. But at the end of the day, they just kind of want to sell more bikes and they want to sell more parts. Um, but who knows? I I recently read the. Um, Eric's book, the cycling marginal gains. And like, for me that like, I feel like every single person in the cycling industry needs to read that book because it's like, we need to rethink where we're at with what we're using and how much, you know, how everything is brand new and like not following cycling trends, you know, especially with kit. Do you need new kit every season? Do you need to follow color trends? Like, I don't know. I think we need to kind of move away from that stuff. Uh, and you're talking about Eric. Uh, I always butcher the pronunciation of his name. It's like Brunsvort or something like that. But he's yeah, that's why I didn't try uh, yeah. to say it. Eric, I'm sorry. I don't know if you're just listening to this episode. I know you and I have spoken before, and I, I'm sorry I butcher your name every time. Yeah. But anyway, um, but yes, Eric is a huge, huge proponent of the whole notion of a circular circular economy, and he certainly focuses a lot on the cycling industry. 
Um, and yeah. uh, I think he has his next conference coming up soon, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he's been doing a series of workshops for uh, business um, uh, like companies in the cycling industry and how they can focus on either turning their company or turning a specific uh, product within their company to think about it more circular, um, which I think is great. I, the thing is, like, Europe is like, I don't know, what are they, a decade ahead of North America? They might even be more. Um, even when it comes to like manufacturing. Um, so I don't know. I'd like to think North American companies getting on board with that and really stepping up. Oh, Ian, let me ask you this specifically for, for Ortley because um, this might, Ortley might be in a little bit more of a unique situation because you do produce all of your stuff in-house. Um, and I guess the same thing for Velocolor as well. I mean, you produce your stuff in-house as well. Um, but how feasible would this sort of thing be with a more typical production sort of scheme where, you know, you have like a design house somewhere and then you have production and manufacturing, you know, in Asia or Eastern Europe or something like that. And then like distribution centers and warehouses and whatever. Is is it possible to have that sort of thing and still have a repair business that's viable? I think, um, you know, those, that question ties in directly to your other question. I think that if you are buying containers full of product from somewhere else and then selling that commodity in your in your nation or territory or wherever, that you are separated from the factory. And that business model right there lends to the, you know, crash replace over repair. You have to create a whole second business for repair. And, um, you know, one of the, the great things about Hartmut being the CEO, the owner, and the the guy, the head designer still, is that um, it's all still his choice. You know, we're not beholden to the bottom line of the next quarter, what the shareholders are saying, you know, how to trim that extra 1%. Um, So we really can hold up to those, you know, principles that we've had since the beginning. Um, A great example, uh, sorry, Another brag. Um, we offer support parts for a decade after we discontinue an item. And that's a policy that's been in place for more than 20 years. Um, so it's it's been there since day one. And I guess we're a little bit unique. But because Hartmut's still at the helm, because he owns the company 100%, and because we're that sort of middle-sized business between two and 300 employees, we can be really nimble and dynamic. Um, and I think that all of that lines up to have continued success in the future, especially now that people have their eyes open to this stuff. You know, originally when I first started working for Ortley, um, before I was full-time, I did uh, a two-year stint part-time in the warehouse. That was uh, 2000 and 2001 um, in the U.S. here. And all of the panniers used to just come with a simple band around them. There was no packaging, no bags, no nothing, and just a small paper tag. And the idea was why would you want to ship all of this extra waste with your product? And then as time went on and as business progressed, you know, we started to play with bigger, bigger stores, you know, shipping more products to really mature environments like REI, et cetera. Um, you know, there was a push that our packaging needed to be better and better. And um, it's kind of interesting to watch it go full arc. So, for a number of years, we were getting more information, more unique cartons, more photos, more imagery, more tutorials, Q 
QR codes and very specific focused, you know, sort of education elements for each unique product on the packaging. And it helped to grow the brand and it helped to educate customers. It also helped to grow a lot of waste. And so now the, the, the arc is going the other way where the retailers are demanding less packaging, you know, smarter packaging. And um, so now we finally get to go back to where we started. Um, last year, we just developed what we call the brown box program. So instead of having, you know, a slew of different carton shapes and sizes with all of this graphics and printing and enhancements that are product driven, we have four or five different carton shapes. And maybe it's a little over half a dozen um, different carton shapes. And they just say bike bag. And then the, ident- <laughs> <laughs> the identifier now is the little product label that goes on there. So the sticker is the only unique item. So that means that we can standardize our warehousing space because now all of the Legos are the same size. Shipping becomes easier. We're buying fewer SKUs of packaging units. And because we're using brown cardboard, not only does it sort of signal to the end user that it's a little bit more environmentally friendly, but it uses a lot less ink also. Um, We are already pegged at the amount of recycled content we could use in the cardboard, so we couldn't really make much improvement that way. But everything else, you know, every little bit helps, basically. I think it's safe to say, and uh, I mean, I think we arguably have been for a long time now that in in modern society, I mean, it is certainly super encouraging to hear that attitudes have been slowly changing, but I think overall, still the expectation is for most people is that when something breaks or isn't as good as the new thing or whatever, that the the, the predominant come up, the predominant course of action is to to buy the new thing. Um, how do you change public? How do you change public attitudes toward that sort of thing? I mean, how what can you do? Well, I would say have great conversations like this one we're having right now and let people hear about it and kind of open their eyes a little bit. But it's up to everyone to make their own choices in life. So you can't force anyone to be responsible. You can lead by example, though. Yeah, I would agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I guess to maybe to wrap up, I mean, I'd be really curious to hear from both of you as far as what sort of suggestions you would have for people listening to this, Um, because I mean, I guess sort of the nature of the cycling industry, it is, you know, a person and a bike. It's some equipment and just all sort of gear and whatever. And it just sort of by nature, there's some some level of stuff involved. Um, but um, Suzanne, maybe I'll start with you. What sort of suggestions do you have to people as far as, you know, kind of suggested best practices when it comes to thinking about how they consume stuff? Yeah. I, th- I think it's important to, you know, consume stuff consciously. I think that sounds really cliche, but, you know, I, ask questions of the companies that you are buying from. So ask them where it's coming from. Ask what they're doing. Ask what their plans are for the future for when it comes to, you know, repairability or sustainability of their products. Um I, I think I, I get the conundrum I always have is like, yeah, what comes first? Is it that the customer wants that? And so companies are forced into it or are companies going to lead the way? Like clearly a company like Ortlieb is leading the way in that. Like is, are the, did the customers ask for that? Did, did the retailers ask for that? Like, yeah, I, that's a, that's a tough one. I would like to think that, you know, you know, don't, 
can I say like, don't think about the next trend. Remember it's about riding your bike. Um, I'm, I'm sure maybe advertisers don't want to hear that. People sponsoring this podcast don't want to hear that. The beauty of it is we don't have any ads on Nerdalette. Oh, right. I should probably know that, right? yeah, like, uh, I, I don't know, like, at the end of the day, think about it, think about the fact that it's riding, like, at the end of the day, you're do you're in part of the cycling industry, because the joy comes in riding your bike. Do you need to upgrade that thing? Do you? Yeah, do you need to be consuming more at the end of the day? And uh, I'm yeah, that's a that's a tough one. But as someone who rides a bike still with cables on it, I probably enjoy myself just as much as someone who's got the newest upgrades. I might even enjoy myself more because I, I don't know, just because I like riding my bike. No. <laughs> well, I, I, I'd say you probably didn't experience the, the, the joy of uh, being caught in the middle of a ride with a dead shifter battery like I did a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. so you're missing out on exactly. that one. <laughs> I can't even keep my lights charged, let alone my bike. So, <laughs> so. And, and then I, I don't know, to, to, to actually lead like the, the joy in riding the bike, of course, but also the joy in like knowing where you got, like we get so many people who come into our space and have a, like bought a saddlebag from us five years ago and they love it and it's great and it does exactly what it needs to do and it doesn't have any bells and whistles and you know there's joy in that there's joy in the simplicity of what is out there and there's joy in knowing that like you can come into this space and see where it's made you know like you um you can talk with the people that made it and i think the more we can kind of support that the the better um Yep, I guess that's that's what I would say. But Ian, thoughts yeah. on that from you? Yeah, I think a lot of what Suzanne said resonates with with my beliefs as well. You know, I think one thing that at least I I am guilty of is when I get into a new hobby, I want to like jump all the way in, right? I want to buy the coolest thing. You know, I'm I'm going to save up. I'm going to buy the expensive version. I'm only going to cry once, just like the Snap On guy told me. But um, you know, in reality getting out there and having the experience learning from your experience then you know what you actually need versus what you want and i think that's the part that a lot of people miss um especially when they're new to something you know do i need an all mountain full suspension or an enduro full suspension what the heck is the difference just get out and ride um you know i i'm also very much a a cables guy you know i i don't have any di2 i I don't even have a carbon bike. Steel is real. Um, I prefer recyclable bikes. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that really just not getting caught up in consumerism hype is, is a big thing. And I probably the marketing team is pissed at me right now or whatever. But you don't need the newest, the latest and greatest. You need to get miles under your butt. And then that will tell you what you need. You know, I didn't need the newest fly fishing rod. I just needed time behind a fishing rod. And then I realized what I need after that. And I think that if people keep that in mind, they can make smarter choices. I really do believe what that Snap-on guy said, you know, save up and buy once. Because if you're replacing something two or three times as your abilities and wants change, um, then that's stuff just headed straight for the landfill. And that's money that you could have spent wiser. So even though maybe you can't afford that thing right now, wait until you can and then see if it's still what you want by that time. 
Right. And and ultimately, in a lot of situations, you end up spending less money in the long term anyway, right? Definitely. 100%. Yeah. Cool. Well, I mean, I, I don't know how much this is changing anyone's mind. I hope maybe at least, <laughs> at least putting just a nugget of thought into someone. Um, mm-hmm. But hopefully we can even just, you know, I guess push just a little bit of change for, uh, about repairing versus replacing stuff. Um, I know, I, well, I think it's pretty safe to say that the three of us here are definitely in the, in the repair corner of the, of the market here. Um, well, all, I would like to, I was going to say ahead. with all the things I break, I have to be in the repair side of things. <laughs> I know me too. I'm, I'm the ultimate product tester. We always joke, like if something could be destroyed, I'll do it in like a matter of weeks. And so if it can survive me, then yeah. Survive me. And then if I can repair it and it still survives, then we know it's a good repair, right? <laughs> well, let's, uh, I think all three of us should give a little word of thanks to, to the YouTube community for, for offering up all that DIY repair stuff. Cause I certainly have been using it just even the last few days at home. Yeah, um, totally. Well, Suzanne, Ian, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks so much for your insight. Thanks so much for just doing this sort of thing. Uh, it's really good to, to, to see this sort of thing happening and, It'd be great if we could see that sort of thing expanded into more aspects, more companies in the bike industry. So who knows? Hopefully things will get better. And like you said, Suzanne, while we still have the option of doing it instead of having to do it. Well, thanks, Ian, for having me. Great. Yeah. Thanks for the time, James. And good to meet you, Suzanne. Yeah, you too, Ian. (laughs) All right. That'll do it for this week's episode of Nerd Alert. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes as it really does help us out and helps more people find the show so they can nerd out too. If you have a question or comment, you can also head over to the associated written post on cyclingtips.com and we'll make sure to get back to you right away. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time. 